0: The book of Matthew begins and, and, and uh, ends on this, on this focus that Jesus is the king. As I said last week in my message, uh, these wise men, these noble men from the East came in Matthew's story beginning in chapter 2 to worship Jesus. And at the very end, Pilate, the Gentile, acknowledged that Jesus was the king of the Jews. And so Matthew's primary focus in his book, written to Jewish people primarily, is that Jesus is king. These wise men that came, we read about them in Matthew chapter 2. They were probably from Babylon, as I said last week. Men from the east who came seeking this newborn king. Now, Matthew, interestingly, in his book, doesn't introduce them, doesn't tell us about their background, doesn't explain who they are. And I think he does that because he assumes that his Jewish audience is already going to know who these men are. He knows that his readers are very familiar with the book of Daniel. And in the book of Daniel, um, there is reference to wise men. Um, And I think that Matthew intends his readers to make that connection. Daniel, who was probably of Jewish noble uh, origin himself, had been taken as a teenager into Babylon in 605 B.C. by the armies of Nebuchadnezzar. And shortly after his arrival there, Nebuchadnezzar has a dream that really concerned him and and, and gave him a lot of consternation, and he couldn't get peace. And so he asks the wise men of Babylon to tell him what the dream was. Remember that from the book of Daniel? And then he asks them to interpret the dream. Now, these guys were wise, but they couldn't know what Nebuchadnezzar had dreamt. But Daniel, who had the Spirit of God upon him, was given that ability by God. And so finally, he was brought before King Nebuchadnezzar, and he told Nebuchadnezzar what he had dreamt, and he also told Nebuchadnezzar the meaning of the dream that he had dreamt. Essentially, the dream had had one sort of big focus. And Daniel was able to tell Nebuchadnezzar that his dream meant that Subsequent to his leadership of the Babylonian Babylonian Empire, the next hundreds of years of history would witness three more world-dominating empires, the the, uh, Medo-Persian Empire, the Greek Empire, and finally the Roman Empire. And And he said that during the days of the Roman Empire, the Fourth Empire, God would set up an eternal world-dominating kingdom that would stand forever. And as a consequence of Daniel being able to tell Nebuchadnezzar what his dream was and the interpretation of the dream, listen to what it says in Daniel chapter two. Then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts and made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. And so Matthew doesn't introduce the wise men to us because I think he knows that his readers are gonna make that connection, that these men from the east came from Babylon and that they were spiritual descendants of the greatest wise men that Babylon had ever seen, the prophet, the Jewish prophet, Daniel. So 600 years later, when a star appeared that shouldn't have been there in the night sky, they knew that something was up and they realized that the Messiah that Daniel had predicted had come he had been born and so they traveled to Jerusalem that was an arduous and long journey but they traveled to Jerusalem and then when they arrived they went directly to Herod's palace because of course if there is a newborn king of the Jews he is going to be born in the palace it just makes a lot of sense and they asked about the whereabouts of this new king and in this passage that I'm going to read for you in a second there are three reactions that we see very clearly to the birth of Jesus. Three reactions that Jesus still elicits today, and I can guarantee you that you will experience one of those reactions tonight, this afternoon, as we talk about the coming of Jesus. So, Herod was the first to react, and his reaction was one of anger. He was very angry. Let me read for you the first three verses. Now, after Jesus had been born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men, magi from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. When Herod the king heard this, he was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. He was troubled in all Jerusalem with him. Herod didn't want a usurper. He didn't want someone taking his place. He was the king of the Jews. He didn't want another authority in his life. He was king, and no one was going to unseat him. He had been given that role by Caesar Augustus in 37 BC, and he had ruled as king of the Jews for over three decades, and he had ruled with an iron fist. He had fought for this position, and he had killed to maintain his place as the king of the Jews. Herod had killed one of his wives. He had killed two of his sons because he believed that they were conspiring against him to remove him from his position of power and authority and autonomy and freedom that he had as king of the Jews. And he was jealous for his authority. He was jealous for his position. He was jealous for this freedom and his power. And so the idea of another authority, the idea of another king who would limit his freedom, limit his autonomy, and take authority and control and leadership and sovereignty in his life deeply unsettled him and made him profoundly angry. And you know, today there's lots of people who will react to Christmas in exactly the same way. My guess is that there's not many of them in this room, although there may be one or two. But a lot of people become angry to the claim that Jesus is king. Because they don't want another authority in their life. They don't want anybody telling them how to live or what to do. They don't want anybody defining morality for them. They don't want anybody that they have to bow the knee to. They want to be free moral agents in our world. They don't want to be told how to live their life. Freedom, autonomy, independence, is critical to them and the idea that Jesus is king causes anger and upset and consternation. The second group were the religious leaders of Israel and they responded with a profound and shocking apathy. Let me read for you from verse four. Well, let me read from verse three to put it in context. When Herod king, the king heard this, he was troubled and all of Jerusalem with him And assembling all the chief priests and the scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it was written by the prophet. And what they did was they quoted the passage that we looked at last week. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, by no means least among the rulers of Judah for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel so when the wise men arrive Herod looks for his wise men <laughs> and his wise men were the religious leaders of Israel he asked the academics he asked the professors where is this messiah if there is a messiah coming and if these wise men believe from the east believe that there is a messiah coming where is he going to be born where will he be born And they quote, as I said, Micah chapter 5 verse 2, which says the baby would be born in Bethlehem, which was really a stone's throw away. A couple of miles, maybe three, four kilometers down the hill from Herod's palace was Bethlehem where the baby was at that time. So Herod sends the wise men to Bethlehem to continue to follow the star, ostensibly so that he could, once they found the Christ child, could go and worship as well, But we know that his purpose was murderous. He wanted that child dead because he didn't want another king, as we've just said. So the wise men leave and they go on and look for Jesus. Now what I find fascinating about this is the apathy of these religious leaders, these, these academics, these scholars. It fascinates me that these men didn't go to Bethlehem It was a simple journey. The wise men had come literally hundreds and hundreds of miles through very, very difficult terrain and and circumstances. All these religious men had to do was basically walk downhill for about 20 minutes, and they would be in Bethlehem. But they didn't go. They didn't go. So why were they so apathetic? Well, perhaps they were afraid of offending Herod. Perhaps political correctness had gripped them a little bit and they didn't want to offend their king, the king of the Jews. Possibly they didn't want anyone to challenge the status quo. They had a very comfortable religious situation of which they were integral and it had been going on the same way for well over a thousand years. Why upset the apple cart with a new king of the Jews? Maybe it was just that plain old human struggle that we all deal with from time to time that disconnect between truth and behavior where we know something to be true but it doesn't impact the way it should the way we live our lives there is that disconnect between truth and behavior between head and heart or alternatively they just didn't believe They were liberal scholars. The Sadducees in Christ's day didn't believe in the resurrection. They didn't believe in the literal interpretation of scripture. They didn't believe a lot of things. They were liberal and the Pharisees obviously were much more conservative. So maybe they were just liberal in their theological perspective. We don't know, but as I said, what's absolutely stunning is the apathy of these men. The fulfillment of literally thousands of Old Testament prophecies. And I just listened to a podcast by R.C. Sproul on the way over here, and he said that some people looking at the Old Testament have identified thousands of Old Testament prophecies about the coming of Christ. And there he was God incarnate, God in the flesh, the one born of a virgin who would be wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, and prince of peace, lying in a stone limestone carved out trough in a manger in Bethlehem, and they couldn't rouse themselves to go and see at least, or explore the possibility that perhaps this was the Messiah. There are a lot of people like this today They know the truth of the incarnation and they know about the gospel, but it really doesn't change them. They would profess to be Christians, they would profess to believe, but that belief hasn't made that 12 or 14 inch journey from head down to heart where truth impacts behavior. So how do we know that the story of Christmas has truly impacted us? Well, we just sang it. Come, let us adore him. That's exactly what the wise men did. There was no anger. There was no apathy. There was simple adoration. Herod sent them off, and they went and found the Christ child. Read with me from verse 7. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child. And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship him. After listening to the king, they went in their way, and behold, the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And here's what they did. When they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. And going into the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshiped. They opened their treasures and offered him gifts of gold and frankincense and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country in another way. The wise men adored Christ. And it caused four reactions very quickly. There was exceeding joy. There was was great joy in their heart. Deep, unquenchable, irrepressible joy in the knowledge that the Messiah, the Christ, had been born. They worshiped, they paid homage to their new king. They gave him gifts, they made sacrifices to him and for him and they expressed allegiance. Instead of going back and telling Herod who was the authority in that area where this child was to be born or was living at that time, they went home a different way because they had switched their allegiance and now they were followers of the God of Israel. Why did they have such a visceral, powerful, strong reaction? Well, if my premise is correct, and if these men did, in fact, come from Babylon, they would have been very, very familiar with the works of Daniel. And in Daniel chapter 9, they would have been familiar with the prophecy that Daniel had written 600 years before this. Where Daniel tells us that this Messiah, this one who was to be born, the one that Isaiah prophesied about, the one that Micah prophesied about, the one that all of the Old Testament spoke of, Daniel tells us that amongst other things, this one, this Messiah will put an end to sin, he will atone for iniquity, and he will bring in everlasting righteousness. That's breathtaking. That's breathtaking. Breathtaking. And in this little baby, I believe that these wise men saw the fulfillment to that prophecy. And that caused such joy and such worship and such willingness to sacrifice. It caused them to change their allegiance immediately to the Christ child. Because they knew, and I don't think they understood fully, but they knew that somehow through the life of this child, God was going to put an end to sin atone for iniquity, and bring in everlasting righteousness. And so joy filled their hearts and worship and sacrifice and loyalty. Today we know as we look back what Jesus did. We know that he lived a perfect life. We know that he went to the cross and died as a substitutionary sacrifice in our stead so that God punished him for our sins and God gives us his perfect righteousness as our own. We understand that, we see that. And so if the, if the reaction of the wise men is anything, ours is far beyond that. It must go beyond that because we see in a way that they didn't see. We see what Christ accomplished in his death, in his life, in his death and his resurrection. And that is our salvation. So when you say Merry Christmas after this service and as we celebrate together and as you go home and as you celebrate Christmas tomorrow, I want you to have exceedingly great joy. And I want you to worship Messiah. And I want you to look forward to a life of sacrifice and devotion to the King of kings and the Lord of lords. And I want you to give him your whole allegiance and your whole heart because he is worthy. He came to redeem us and he has. And so we adore him, we worship him, and we bless him for what he has done for us. Let's pray together and thank God for such a great salvation. Let's pray. Father, I know that there are many people in our society, and there may be some people here today, even in this room, who are angry at the prospect that Jesus would demand that we would bow the knee and follow him. And I pray, Father, if there's anybody in this state today, I just pray that you would help them to see that Jesus is the king and that he is God and that he is righteous and holy and good and just and that he deserves our allegiance. Lord, there may be some of us who are apathetic. We know the truth. We have an understanding of it, but that truth hasn't made a journey in a a life-changing way from our heads down to our heart. I pray, Father, that for people in this room tonight or this afternoon who are who are in that state, I pray, Father, that you would allow the truth to sink and make that journey into their hearts so that there would be a transformation that they, like the wise men, would know joy and worship, be willing to sacrifice for this king and follow him faithfully all the days of their lives. And Father, I just pray if there's, if there's any of us here who have never really come to that place where we have receive the forgiveness and the grace of God into our lives. I pray that you would open eyes and open hearts. Let us see the real meaning of Christmas so that this Christmas we might truly be able to have a merry, joy-filled Christmas knowing sins are forgiven and that we are reconciled to God through the Lord Jesus Christ. Grant that, I pray in his name. Amen.